0: Would you turn to Deuteronomy 8? Today is Commitment Sunday for our Living Stones campaign. If you're a guest with us, uh, we are endeavoring to significantly improve our site. So I'm preaching over that to how do we commit as a church to move from here on. So that's, that's the thought that's guiding me today. And, and I'll start with a couple of examples. Uh, my wife and I were at a retreat or conference this week. We were down in Dallas at a church conference. And it's the first time I've ever used uh, Lyft. It's like Uber. <laughs> you know Uber, Lyft? Uh, it is a, um, a, like a self-employed personal vehicle taxi. So our Lyft driver, her name was Lynette. It was She was a full-time Lyft driver. And we had a wonderful experience for half the price of a taxi. Uh, So it was great. And while we're in Lynette's car, my wife and I both remark, my, what a nice car you have. I mean, it was so clean. It was so welcoming. And Lynette went on to say, describe, you know, how important it is to her that, you know, it it would make sense, right? And this is nothing surprising to you, how important it is to her uh, to welcome, like, the gift of hospitality, was at work and her welcoming people into her car. And she makes a lot of her business is on getting the round trip out of a one-way trip. So she takes us from the airport to the hotel and says, if you'd like, tell me when you need me to pick you up and I'll pick you up. And we had had such a good experience, we said, you bet, we'll text you. And we texted her and she came and she got us and we brought us back. but it was So she gets twice the business, if you can understand, by building a reputation, and so a clean car is really important to her. That's the lead ethic. You might say the guiding virtue for Lynette is hospitality because she's in the world of services, which is very different than our drive from our house to the airport. That car was not so much. It was messy and dirty and little things out of place just things that you want to reach out and fix. And my wife even said it to the driver. She said to me, your car is a mess. (laughs) To which I said, it's my car, who cares? Like, I'm not an Uber driver, and she's not paying. Like, Like, for me, there's... The lead ethic in my car, the best way, and I mean, I could be cleaner, but the best way in my car for me to be myself is actually to exercise the virtue of satisfaction, the virtue of thriftiness, the virtue of contentment. So something breaks in my car and it breaks. I can see the road through my floor. (laughs) Like I can tell what time of day it is by looking down but I'm okay with it, right? Who needs a floor? So there's, it's a, for me, the lead ethic, listen to this, the lead ethic for me is contentment. I'm exercising contentment. For Lynette, the lead ethic is hospitality. Now, if she were to take my lead ethic into her world and I were to take hers into mine, actually, she would go bankrupt, Right? And I would look weird. Like, you would look at me like, man, he's kind of OCD with his 2006 Nissan Ultima. Like, detailing it all the time and putting the black stuff on the wheels. And It's a 2006 Nissan Ultima. You'd say, what's his deal? Do you see how an ethic, the ethic or virtue that's out front has a good deal to say about the chief motivation that's driving everything. What does Lynette want to do? That dictates what virtue's up front. What am I trying to do? It's my office. Be content before the Lord. Very different cars. Very different cars because of that. I'll give you one more quick example because I'm probably going to go along. Anyway, uh, on Kirkwood Highway, there is the last surviving pizza hut it's near Price's Corner. I grew up there in the 80s. As a boy, we would often go there after church. We would go to Pizza Hut. And we're in the 80s, Pizza Hut ruled. It was a good, it was a good restaurant. And it was a, that was a well-kept location there on Kirkwood Highway. You would go in. They had a good arcade games. They had a good jukebox. And they had a good salad bar. And we would go to Pizza Hut and we'd all put our hands out to my dad and say, give me a quarter. And he'd put a quarter in our hand and my sister and I would go to the arcade game and my brother would go to the jukebox and he'd put his quarter in and select the Reflex by Duran Duran. And then we would sit down and my dad would go to the salad bar and he'd get a salad with French dressing and we'd all sit down and and eat and eventually the song would come on, right? With a jukebox, you can't just, you don't know when it's coming on. It's cued. So when your song plays, it's like, You're shaping the world, because the whole restaurant's listening. You know, it it takes courage to use a jukebox, and uh, but it was just great, and the pizza is just great, right? Have you been there recently? Things have changed for the worse. It's rough there. I mean, they put the hut in Pizza Hut. You go there and you know the moment you walk in that the dine-in customer is an afterthought and that the pizza industry is about takeout and, and delivery. You walk in and it stacks of boxes for delivery, just sitting there like they would prefer to stack boxes rather than inhabit humans. And where the salad bar is, there's no salad bar. It's like they filled the old salad bar up with concrete and leveled it off. It's like a do-not-even-think-about-salad bar. <laughs> okay? And it's, it's just rank in there, and stuff's all torn, and the fake leather it just looks like old vinyl. And, and if you go to the bathroom, you feel like you're, you're in an employee bathroom in the back of a hardware store. In fact, I did go into the bathroom... And I took a picture. <laughs> Try, you're okay. That's in that. <laughs> Little Caesar's rules. Now, this is ironic in like a thousand ways, okay? It's ironic. What I find most interesting is the employee sent in to wash it gave up. You see, it was like scrub, scrub, ah, forget it. Now, the owner of that pizza hut does not need to tell me that he makes all of his business going out the door. He doesn't need to tell me that. I don't need to hear a word. His lead ethic tells me of his chief motive. He has told me everything he needs to know by the way he unwelcomed me into the building. Can you see where this is going The virtues we see exercised speak to the motives that drive us. If our motives are right, then our virtues are in order. If our motives are out of order, then our virtues are out of order. When you have, it, it, you know, it really is about ownership. How, how, do, how does a person leverage ownership? What kind of car do they have, and why? Let's say you have, for example, a building. And and by the way, I'm gonna give, these are extremes, so don't think that I'm implying we fit in a category. I'm giving extremes, and I think we fit in neither category. But let's say you have a building, and your sense is that the purpose of the building is for the people that are already there. The building is for those who are already part of it. Well, that dictates what sort of virtues stand out front. Virtues of, you know, thriftiness, austerity, utility, function, Uh, and it begins to birth things into a fellowship, like they can sort of abide colloquial quirkiness. That's just our way. Like, yeah, that's just our way. That's okay if, if it's for you. Uh, you can, you know, have a culture of, like, internal language so that if someone came from the outside, it would be like a series of inside jokes or you just had to be theirs. That would be one extreme. Or you could let's say you had a building and your sense with the building was of those who were not yet there. It would be a very different kind of building with very different kind of lead ethics. Different virtues would be out front. Virtues like welcoming, invitation, carefulness in, in how you communicated culture, carefulness with language. You'd be very culture-wise in the language you would use. Um, very attentive to the sort of experience that uh, you only have once in your life, which is the first time. Like, you guys, you remember going on a first date? You remember how you'd clean that car? Why'd you do that? Because you were fairly certain that you weren't, she probably didn't like you that much and you were trying to impress her. Like, you knew who you were, and you were scared she'd figure it out. So you were cleaning the car up. That's what you do when you're preparing something for someone who's not yet in. Now, again, we rarely live on the extremes. But we usually, when we do a spectrum, we usually build a spectrum so as to put ourselves in the middle. (laughs) We rarely live on these extremes, but the reality is, is we rarely live in the balance either. We are almost always biased some side or another. And I think we have bias. I think we're biased. Towards the... those who are here. Now, uh, someone might think, and and it's been said over the years, and I've heard it, and it's been said with a good spirit, so I'm not even trying to uh, kind of bring accusation on the comment, but we've grown just fine the way we are, has been the statement. And that might be true, though I have no idea how a person would know that. How do you know if we've grown just fine? The only metric of us having grown just fine as if we have been in the perfect, perfect will of God the whole time. I, I don't know what, it's as unmeasurable as another question which should be asked equally. If you're going to ask one, it is, I wonder how many people have chosen not to come or have passed through because of our setting. We really can't answer those things. But we can think about them. So I'd like us to think about them in Deuteronomy 8. The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. You can think of it this way. Think of it as a sermon that Moses gets before they enter into a campaign to take the land that was promised to them. Okay, so they're entering into a a different campaign of sorts. But... Deuteronomy is a a kind of the record of a sermon that's taking place right before they head in. And it's going to lead to commitment. It's going to lead to to sort of a pensive recommittal to the Lord. And the eighth chapter sort of catches the heart of it very, very well. Let me read 8, 1 through 6. This is Moses writing, The whole commandment that I have commanded you today you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know him, know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So, You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. Moses is preaching to bias. He's trying to prevent something from happening and he's just getting going and he's describing for them their past 40 years and saying to them, your past experience in the wilderness has been intentionally orchestrated by the Lord to generate in you complete and utter dependence upon him. That's what it is. God has spent, out of the love that a father would have for a son, to discipline them, right, to, that's the root of disciple, right, to carve out in them the sort of person that's ready for the long term. What the Lord did is he brought them into the desert and he took things away from them, and then gave them back in only a way that he could have done. It says in the third verse, God made you hunger and then fed you with manna. God brought them to a place of scarcity and then fed them in a way that was unknown to them, in a way that they could say only God could do this. Because God is trying to drill into them dependency upon him. And it matters because everything is about to change for them. Everything is about to change. Look at the next several verses. I'm going to read seven to 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and springs God's trying to make them dependent, know their utter dependence upon him now because he's about to take them and place them into a place where they may not apparently be dependent upon him. That's the, that's the danger. Is they're going to a place where they don't have to cry out for manna. They're going to a place that where the material circumstances that are around them are good enough that they don't have to live a life of faith. This is, as a father disciplines a son and raises him, ultimately, he says it. He says, like a father disciplines a son, I discipline you for your good. You're trying to raise a child for their good so that they can have good things. And so the father is about to give good things to the son here. And his hope is, is that when they receive it, They're thankful to him. They are as dependent upon him in blessing as they are in scarcity. Okay? Because here's the deal everything's about to change. They're about to have something they have only dreamt of since they were a people. They have never had homes, have never had farms have never had property since Abraham. It's about to change. And God follows it up with a warning. Listen to what he says here in verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, but he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth That he may confirm his covenant that he swore to his your fathers. As it is this day, and if you forget the Lord your God and go after gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish, like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. God knows their bias. He knows they're prone to forget. He knows that they are prone to think that their well-being is solely attributed to their hard work. And he's saying, watch it. 40 years I've tried to prepare you for this moment. God knows and this is an interesting thought. God knows that a good thing can actually be- become a life-threatening bad thing. Think of that. A good thing can become a life-threatening bad thing if you change your perspective about it. A step directly into the will of God can ultimately become a step one step closer to peril if you change the way you think about God. Just think about that. The picture here is that the sign to blessing and the sign to cursing are pointing in exactly the same direction. Go in, I'm giving you the land to take it, but everything has to do with how you think of me when you have it. It's not just this step, it's the next one. Now, our present quest is not, is not entirely the same, so uh, I'm not, and I actually, I'm not even going most of the implications are there, I'm just going to leave for you, you know, just let the Lord do what he wants with you about that. Uh, it might not be as different as you think it is, it's not the same, but it's not that different. Uh, I mean, you might think, well, God's giving them the land, and in our program, we're We're paying. God doesn't really give them the land. You know, I think if you if you remember, I think you'd pick our way. <laughs> you know, his, here I'm giving you the land. Go destroy Jericho. Go destroy AI, and then here's a list of about a hundred other cities to go destroy. And you're gonna you're gonna fight for the land until the taste of battle is noxious to you. They will eventually exhaust exhaust themselves from the effort. Of claiming the land, they'll be so tired of fighting for it. So, some things aren't as different as they might seem, but some things are. You know, I think a difference for us is we have the Holy Spirit. We are God's people now, walking with the full promise. So, there's more, more afforded to us in the counsel of the Spirit and through the work of Christ than they might have had. I think that's the primary difference is we have a a better promise and a a better story at this point. But what I really want to draw out, and what I think is important, at least for our time today, is that God seemed to see fit to to mark the importance of the special, of this big steps. He's marking them. Before they take a big step, he's saying, Stop. Let's think about who we are and what's in front of us. That's what, that's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is, but particularly, kind of Deuteronomy 8 sort of highlights that, is before they go, the Lord's saying, do you remember how you are? Because our biases sort of call us back, don't they? Biases are sort of elastic in the way we fall back into them so what i'd like to do is follow the model right is is before we take a big step in an important way is to stop and bring before the lord a heart of commitment that's what they're going to do by the deuteronomy ends with Ends with a recommittal, ends with blessings and curses, also ends with circumcision. I mean, the story goes on to show that they get recircumcised before they go in. I mean, it's a very significant recommittal that's taking place. I think today as, as we are committing to do a significant thing, we should we should think about it. We should try to open our eyes to our bias. So what, what is it? Um, I would say this. What's our bias? Well, you would know our bias by looking at what our chief virtues are, our lead virtues. In other words, what does the car look like? That'll tell you. And again, I don't think we're on any extreme, and I think there's, many, many wonderful things to say. I'm going to try to give you a generous, even-handed perspective here. I would say that our church is primarily invested in those already here with an emphasis on children. I think once you get here, it's a church of great value. How you get here is a little bit organic. Sometimes it asks a little bit of somebody. But once you get here, it's primarily, it's, it's a good church to those who are here with an emphasis on children. That's, it does many things, but I think that's kind of a, hits the, hits the center of the circle. I will add that our vision to build is a good faith effort to recognize a lo- what's maybe wrong in our bias and to correct it. So if you're already here, you don't need a parking lot or you wouldn't be here so the fact that you're here means, and the fact that we're building a parking lot means it's not for us because we're already here. If you're already established here, you don't, need to know, you don't need to have an obvious entryway to help you understand where do I enter into this building because you know probably five of the nine ways to get in here by now and which ones are locked and unlocked depending on the phase of the moon. <laughs> you figured that out. If you're already here, you know where the bathrooms are hidden and how far you have to walk. You don't need... I mean, so there's a lot of things in our program that we're trying to do that are recognizing maybe our bias and trying to say we can be more... We can be more attentive to those who have not been here. But... Bias is a tendency, it's not a building. Which means if we don't care, if we, like, like them, if we're not thoughtful as we commit, we could come out of this program with the very same bias that we had when we went into it. Which would mean that I would think there's a possibility that we could come out of a building program which might have looked more like a home improvement program. that we have just fixed our house. And I know we don't want to do that. As we commit this morning as a church, let's commit to doing the right thing well. And as I've been thought on trying to, how do I how to describe this? I have such an aversion to thinking about like what kind of church We are going to be like, I don't want to, I don't want to think about that. I, if I could, if I could sand off or scrape off all of the ways we think about church for a second, just shed all of that away from us so that there's nothing left. No, no concept of structure, no concept of program, no concept of liturgy, just, just if we could purely scrape it away, what I would rather us do is say we want this gathering of believers to be the perfect imitation of Jesus Christ. Just allow his life to be our model. And when I think about how we might commit and how we might fight a tendency or a bias, I think to look at Christ's, his life lived, Is the best way to continually call us back. Because how did Christ minister? Did he minister in one town all the time? Did he just minister to the 12? No. He went town to town, all around Galilee, city after city, proclaiming the arrival of his kingdom. And after he had gone through all those cities, you know what he did? He took his 12, he cut them up two by two, and he sent them back to those cities to re-proclaim the kingdom of God and try to continue the work that he had started. And after that it happened, some time later, he grabbed 72 of his disciples and divided them up two by two and sent them back out to the same cities that he had been to, to continually foster and fertilize and cultivate the work that had begun. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven had arrived and because the earth was full of darkness Because the Lord desired more people should know. Because Christ is mindful of those who have not heard. The same Jesus, upon his resurrection, says to the disciples, all power and authority have been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples, not believers, disciples of all nations. Why? Because he's mindful of people who have not heard. The same Jesus right before his ascension said, you wait for the power of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Why? Because the Lord is mindful of who is not here. Go back before that. What would incline the Father to send the Son to the earth for the expressed purpose of bearing the weight of your sins and my sins, the sins of the world. What, What would incline him to do that? Certainly he can't be lonely. Certainly he cannot prefer my company to the company of his son. Why would he do that? Why would he? I mean, you've sinned, I've sinned against one another, against the Lord, against those we love most. You and I have had dark thoughts about ourselves, about other people, about God. Why would he send his son to account for all of our wrongdoing so that we could be with him? Why would would he do that? And why would the Son willingly, lovingly, and in pure agreement come? What is what is the lead ethic in that? What's the lead driver in that? Clearly, God is not content that the world would be in darkness. Clearly, God is interested in those who do not know him yet. Clearly, the Lord sees fit out of the abundance of his own power to set the world right. Clearly, the Lord cares about the terrain in your soul that is messed up. And he wants to go in and fix it. Think of this. Why does the Holy Spirit not just stop at saving us? Like, we're saved. Great. Why, why not just stop there? Don't we all get to go to heaven? Why is it the Holy Spirit in the measure and in the timing that we're able to handle begins to scratch and gnaw inside of us and push and pull inside of us and stretch us and bend us and convict us and ply us? Why does he do that? Because the Lord is not content until all of you is his dominion. Even inside you, the places that are dark, God wants to make light. The places that are old, God wants to make new. The places that are dead, God wants to bring life. You tell me, son of man, can these dry bones live or not? If we are going to be the perfect imitation of the holy son of God who gave his life for those who were not with him, What does that mean? That should drive how we view what we're about to do. The fact that he says, would not a shepherd who has 99 sheep safely in the fold, safely in the pen, upon hearing that one sheep is missing, one would search until he found them and then would rejoice upon the finding." We worship a redeemer who wants to do more with us than we can imagine. Redemption, selfless love, life over death. This is what God does for us. And I want to take this to commitment. As we go before the Lord, as we go to commit, may we remember this. May we remember that God wants to do, God is interested in those who are not here And we need his Holy Spirit. If Without his Holy Spirit, we can do one or two things really, really well. Without his Holy Spirit, we can say, well, we're this kind of a church. Or we're that kind of a church. Any, any church can say we're this kind of a church or we're that kind of a church. Because anyone without the Spirit can be some kind of a church. Only someone with the Spirit can be the full body of Jesus. We're not supposed to be a kind of church. We're supposed to be Him. Which is more than what we're able to be without them. So, what I want to do, I want to lead you in prayer. My prayer is not. I think you should have time to pray about your giving, and I hope you have. There's envelopes and there's cards, and you can you have a moment to fill those out. I want us before we before we put pin, I want us to think about why are we doing what we're doing. I'm worried about the course we set. I'm not worried. I'm mindful of the course we're setting to do it well. Let's pray, Lord. I I just think that good commitment comes from good confession. So we confess what we're not to you. Confess our bias to you. Confess our natural comfort in nest building, Lord. Of making places uh, that we're, we reside in uh, suitable, Lord, the difficulty in continually thinking of people we don't know, the unnaturalness, Lord, in that it's unnatural, Lord, for us to do that, and for that we, we, we are who we are, and we need your help, Lord. We cannot be you without your help. We are in dire need of help. We are in abject dependence upon the bread from heaven. Lord, and we may give us a holy fear of heading into plenty with our eyes set on us. Lord, may you give us holy eyes to see your great and wondrous plan, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this building one day would be teeming, swarming with new people, new names. Lord, I pray that... I pray, Lord, for the chaos of growth. Lord, even now, I, I, we place the comfort and the safety we find in structure and program and doing things uh, process Lord these things that have become so part Lord even of my own ministry Lord I repent of it is great and you are greatly to be praised Amen